Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. We are doing a two-part series leading up to our Easter weekend festivities here at Paradox. And this week's teaching focuses on Matthew 18 and is entitled, The Kingdom of the Christ. Today, we are going to take a look at Matthew chapter 18. Now, this story unfolds in the town of Capernaum, which is the hometown of Jesus. Capernaum is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, about 80 miles to the north of the capital of Judea, which is Jerusalem. So while Jesus is in Capernaum with his disciples, the disciples ask him a question. Teacher, they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? These disciples have heard Jesus speak now multiple times about the kingdom of heaven. And seeing as these are poor and oppressed Jews who are living under Roman rule, they get rather excited when Jesus starts talking about a new kingdom. And they want to know right now, before the kingdom is established, what it takes to be great in this new kind of kingdom. Jesus hears their question and responds, with an unexpected answer. He says to them, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, when I read this in 2019, I read it as a parent of two. And when Jesus says we must become humble like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven and become great, I am rather confused because I have a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. And while I describe these children often with glowing and positive words, a word I've never used to describe either of them is humble. My daughter often comes to me saying words like, Daddy, I have a great idea. To which I respond, what is your great idea, Maya? And she says something along these lines. Well, why don't I stay up, watch a movie, and eat lots of cake? And I have to respond by saying, oh, honey, that's not a good idea. So when Jesus tells us that we have to become humble like a child to become great in the kingdom of heaven, a question that we need to ask is, what on earth does it mean to become humble like a child? So keep that question in your mind, because I think by the end of this chapter, Jesus tells us what it means to be humble like a child. But to get to that end point and answer that question, we have to go through all of Matthew 18, because there's lots of interesting things Jesus says about the kingdom of heaven along the way. Let's go back just a few verses back to verse three, when Jesus is answering the disciples questions about who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Because it's here that he reveals what he understands the kingdom of heaven to be. He says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus' words here are rather interesting. Because he makes it sound like entering the kingdom of heaven is a daily choice that you and I make. And whenever you refuse on a daily basis to become like a child you then refuse to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not only that, but in the next few verses, 
he continues this train of thought with these kinds of verbs. He says, whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. These present tense verbs indicate that Jesus doesn't view heaven as some sort of ethereal, otherworldly, far-off ejection seat. Rather, Jesus sees heaven as an earthly reality that we are invited to participate in now. And so while some Christians may say we die and then go to heaven, Jesus says that may be true, but you can start living in heavenly ways right here, right now on this earth. In fact, when we look closely at the words of Jesus, particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, Jesus is almost always talking about life here on earth now and rarely, if ever, speaks about life in the distant future in some other place other than earth. Not only that, but as you look at what Jesus continues to say about children and mistreating them and becoming stumbling blocks in their lives, Jesus starts to talk about a way to enter life. And the way that Jesus talks about kingdom of heaven is to live life fully right here and right now. For Jesus, heaven is an earthly reality that you and I are invited to participate in right now. To illustrate what kingdom living looks like, Jesus begins to tell a parable in verse 12. He says, imagine a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. What happens when one goes astray? Well, if you're like me, you're living in 2019 and you're saying to yourself, I have no idea what a shepherd does when one sheep goes astray when he has 99 others to care for because I've never shepherded. But Jesus' intended audience, the disciples, would know exactly what would happen in this scenario. According to New Testament commentator William Barclay, often communal flocks existed with large numbers of sheep, sometimes nearing 100. These communal flocks were overseen by two or three shepherds at a time. So if one of the sheep wandered off from the flock, one of the shepherds would leave the other 99 sheep in the care of the other shepherds and go and find that sheep. Now the shepherd who went to search for the lost sheep would not return until he had some evidence that the sheep had been killed or had died or that he had found the sheep and would bring him back to the flock. And at that point, there would be great rejoicing because what was once lost is now found. So when Jesus tells this parable to disciples, he says, imagine that you have 100 sheep. One wanders off. What happens? Well, one shepherd will go and search tirelessly for that sheep and bring that sheep back into the flock. He then wraps up this parable by saying, So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little children should be lost. So while most people would say that 99% inclusion is a good thing, Jesus says that's not the way the kingdom of heaven works. For Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is built on the inclusion of every human being. 100% of every human who has ever lived is part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're like me, you hear this and you say to yourself, well, that sounds really nice, but I know some people that I don't want to be part of this kingdom of heaven because there are some evil people in the world. Not only that, but there are people who have wronged me that I don't want to see in heaven. 
And if you are thinking something like that, then you have a real friend in the Bible, and that friend's name is Peter. Peter, one of the disciples, hears Jesus talking about this inclusion of every human being, of every person who was once a child being part of the kingdom of heaven. And Peter has some concerns because there's some people he doesn't want in the kingdom of heaven. So he decides to voice his concerns through a question that is quite clever. He asks Jesus after Jesus tells this parable, this question, how many times Jesus do I need to forgive someone? Seven times? I mean, Jesus, if somebody wanders away from the flock or goes against the kingdom of heaven seven times, maybe they're trying to send us a message. And on the eighth time, we should just let them be and let them go. Because there has to be some point where you say, you know, clearly this person doesn't want to be part of this. Let's just let them be. Jesus hears Peter's suggestion and responds by saying, oh, not seven times, Peter, but I tell you 77 times. Now, a biblical literist would hear Jesus' words and say, there's the number, 77 times. If someone wrongs you 78 times, that's when you are justified to say you do not deserve forgiveness anymore. But as the great Richard Rohr says, to live at a literal level is to live at the lowest level of meaning. Because Jesus here is alluding to something else. Back in Jesus' day, every Jewish man had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Now, why was that? There was no printing press. So the only way that people could carry the word of God with them was to memorize it. Now, that may seem impossible by our standards today, but you have to remember there was no YouTube. There was no Facebook. People had some time to do some things like sit around and memorize scripture, right? So in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, we come across a story in the fourth chapter about a man named Lemek. Lemek is a descendant from Cain. And in Genesis 4, Lemek is speaking to his wives and he says these words, Ada and Zillah, his wives' names. He says, hear my voice, you wives of Lemek. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So Lemek is telling his wives that whenever somebody punches him, he responds by murdering them. In other words, do not mess with Lemek. Because if you cross Lemek, then Lemek will repay you exponentially with something worse. Not only that, but Lemek is proud of this reputation. He wants to be known as a man of harsh vengeance. So much so that when he's speaking to his wives in the next verse, he says, If Cain, my ancestor, is avenged sevenfold, then truly Lemek is avenged seventy-sevenfold. So thousands of years later, some Jewish men who have this story of Lemek memorized and how Lemek's got this reputation of exponential vengeance, Peter comes along and says, Hey, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? And Jesus says, No. No, you're not dreaming big enough. I want you to be known for this. 77 times is how often you should forgive someone. And in the same way that Lemek has this just giant reputation of exponential violence, I want Christians, I want you, Peter, 
to have this reputation of exponential grace. That it just keeps giving. That Christians continue to give people a second chance. For Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of heaven strive for a reputation of abundantly charitable, illogically inspiring, no-holds-barred forgiveness. This is what we should be known for. Over the past several years, though, I've learned something about when I speak on forgiveness. You see, I'm in relationship with so many of you, and I've heard your stories both of triumphs and of deep sadness. And I've heard stories about when other people have wronged you and you trying to figure out what forgiveness means. So often when Christians speak of forgiveness, we speak of it in a way that implies that you must have the person who has wronged you over for dinner and everything must be hunky-dory from that point forward. Well, there's times where that is the exact wrong thing to do when it comes to forgiveness. And I've learned this because I've been in relationship and community with you now for several years. I bring all of this up because we must remember that forgiveness is a complex issue. It's a very complex issue. And for me to say you need to do X, Y, and Z to forgive someone, I've learned that doesn't work because how do you forgive someone who physically abuses you? How do you forgive someone who keeps stealing from you? And no matter what you do, they continue to have their interests before your own. And when I speak of forgiveness, you're probably thinking of someone right now in your life that is very difficult to forgive. And while it would be nice that if I could outline like a 12-step program for you to forgive this person and have everything return to normal, that's really difficult to do. Uh, especially when it comes to speaking to an audience of people from diverse backgrounds. Forgiveness is a complex issue, and I would argue it's probably the most difficult thing you will do in your life. But what Jesus shows us again and again and again throughout the four Gospels is that the journey of forgiveness is always a journey that is worth taking. That the life that is worth living is found on the road to reconciliation in some form or another. And so Jesus teaches on several occasions about what it's like to let go of anger and what it means to forgive someone who has wronged you. And to embody the complexity of all of these things, Jesus begins to tell a parable which brings Matthew 18 to a close. And this parable is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. So I'm going to tell a paraphrased version of this story that Jesus told. And I believe that this story helps teach us how to forgive in the wide variety of what that means for our different life experiences. So the story goes like this. There once was an old king who summoned his butler and said, I wish to settle my accounts. So the butler went out and got the first person he could find that owed the king money. And this man, we will call him Mr. Green, entered the king's court. When he arrived in the king's court, he bowed before the king and the king said to him, you owe me 10,000 talents. To which Mr. Green responded, I do not have 10,000 talents. The king was angry that Mr. Green could not pay his debt. 
he stood up and fiercely said, well, then I will sell you and your family into slavery. Mr. Green began to quiver and from the ground, lying prostrate, he said, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. This plea for mercy echoed throughout the halls and sat for a moment before the king considered what he was doing. Now the king began to grow in pity for the poor man and he had a change of heart. And as Mr. Green was lying prostrate on the ground, the king quietly said, your debt is forgiven. You no longer owe me 10,000 talents. Mr. Green could barely believe his ears. He stood up and he said, thank you, king. Thank you. You will not regret this. What an incredible gift of generosity. Mr. Green then left his court and now being a free man, free of debt, he had the question to ask himself what he should do with his life. An idea came to Mr. Green and he began to act on it. He set out to the town edge where he found a man named Mr. Blue. He ran right up to Mr. Blue, got right in his face, and he said, you owe me 100 denarii. Pay me what you owe. He became so angry that he grabbed Mr. Blue by the throat and began to choke him and wrestle him to the ground. Once he was down on the ground between these gasping breaths for air, Mr. Blue yelled out with everything that he could, have patience with me and I will pay you. Mr. Green heard him say these words, and without hesitation, he said, No, guards, throw this man in jail, for he owes me money and he cannot pay. The guards immediately seized Mr. Blue and threw him in jail. But word spread quickly throughout the kingdom of what Mr. Green had done. It spread so quickly that it reached the king himself, and the king immediately sent for Mr. Green, telling him to get into his court in an instant. Mr. Green ran to the court of the king, and without hesitating, the king stood up and looked right at Mr. Green and said, You wicked servant, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then I will let the words of Jesus wrap up these stories with his two sentences. And in anger, the king handed him over to be tortured until he should pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. My reaction to this story is simply this. Really? Torturing people? Why is Jesus threatening us by saying that if we don't comply, God will torture us forever? <laughs> that sounds, that's, what a terrible way to end a story, right? Not only that, but this is not a happy ending. Everyone ends up mad. Everyone's angry. There's violence. There's people thrown in jail. You're not really sure what's going on here. So if you're like me, you hear this and you say to yourself, this story is terrible. Is there any redeeming value here? Well, there is, but you have to hear the story the way the disciples heard it because Jesus knew his audience. If we go back to when Mr. Green was choking Mr. Blue and demanding that he pay him 100 denarii, it's important that we know how much 100 denarii is. 100 denarii is about five months wages by our standards today. So if you make $60,000 in your salary per year, 
A hundred denarii is the equivalent of $25,000. Now imagine for a moment that you loaned someone $25,000 and they didn't pay you back. How would you feel? Would you be angry? Would you be impatient? Would you act similarly to Mr. Green? Well, you may say to yourself, well, I wouldn't loan out $25,000. I mean, that's fine. But at the same time, you have to understand that Mr. Green did loan it out, assuming that Mr. Blue could pay him back. When we read this story, it's important that we acknowledge that 100 denarii is a significant amount of money. And to trivialize the sum of 100 denarii actually cheapens the story. Which brings us to the other sum of money. When the king calls Mr. Green into his court at the very beginning, he says, you owe me 10,000 talents. Now, in Jesus' day and age, one talent was equivalent to 15 years worth of wages. So if you want to know what the equivalent of 10,000 talents is to your life, just multiply your salary by 150,000. So if you make $60,000 a year, then 10,000 talents is the equivalent of $9 billion. Who's loaning out $9 billion? <laughs> now I escalate my voice and I yell into this microphone for one reason. The premise of this story is ridiculous. And you can imagine the disciples hearing this story for the first time. And Jesus says, there once was a king who loaned a man 10,000 talents. And they must have all been like, what? Okay. 10,000 talents, right. So we have to remember that this king loans $9 billion to Mr. Green. Mr. Green then is forgiven that. Mr. Green then goes out and finds someone else and says, you owe me $25,000. That man ends up in jail. Mr. Green then ends up in jail also, and he's tortured forever by the words, so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. While those are harsh words, when you listen closely to the words of Jesus, what he so often describes is that the ways of God are the ways of reality. And when we talk about God, we are talking about reality with a face and a conscience. This is why Jesus so often teaches that people are not punished for their sins, but rather by their sins. And when you consider the main character in this story, who we've called Mr. Green, this man is the recipient of extraordinary grace, but he refuses to see it. Now, what kind of life is that? Well, I would say it's a pretty miserable existence, isn't it? To be living in an ocean of grace and to be obsessing about the discolorization of one drop is a terrible way to live. And so when Jesus talks about forgiveness, he tells this parable about a man who refuses to see all of the grace that is around him and how that leads to him being unforgiving in his own life. Now, what does that mean for us today? For that, I'd like to tell you a story that took place on September 5, 2010, which may be a meaningless date to you, but is of great importance to me because it was on that date that I married my wife, Kimmy. 
Now, this was a fantastic ceremony. We got married in the front yard of my aunt and uncle's house. My wife gave the best vows I have ever heard at a wedding period, and I was the recipient of it. Not only that, but I got to write and sing a song for my wife. And if you look at the picture of her hearing that song, it is the happiest I've ever seen her. We got to dance out the aisle together to the song Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. We had a fantastic reception with meaningful toasts and delicious food. And then when we exited, we exited underneath a tunnel of sparklers as people cheered for us as we walked to our getaway car, a 1967 Austin Cooper S. It was my dad's car that my cousin had bought from him and fixed up and restored, and we were able to drive away in this car with a big sign on the side that said, Just Married. We departed that parking lot in that green Mini Cooper with streamers and flowers on our car, and we began our married life together. Now, it's here that most people think, I hope this story ends right here. But it doesn't. Because from the reception venue, we made one right turn down one block, then made a left turn. And as we hit that left turn, We all of a sudden looked in the rearview mirror and there behind me was a police car with its sirens on full blast. I pulled over hoping that this police car would keep going, but I was disappointed to find that he pulled over with me. I remember I said something like this to my wife. I said, I can't believe we're getting pulled over right now. After a few minutes, the police officer came to my window. He tapped on the window. I tried to roll it down, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I had to open the door to speak to him. And after a moment, the police officer said, hi, did you two just get married? (laughs) To which I have to laugh as I tell this story because it was all over our car that we just got married. (laughs) And so I said, yes, sir, I did. And he said to me, your tags are expired on your license plate. You are driving this car illegally and I need to see your license and registration. So I went to reach for my wallet, and in horror, I realized it wasn't there. I had given it to my brother for safekeeping during the wedding, and he was going to give it back to me tomorrow. So I looked at the officer and said, I don't have my license. And the officer said to me, you're driving without a license? And I said, I, I'm sorry, my brother it was supposed to meet me. I, I, I'm really sorry. He said, well, then give me your registration. So my wife began looking through the glove compartment and she said, it's not here, Craig. It's not here, Craig. And I had to turn to the officer and say, I don't have the registration either. At that point, the officer said, whose car is this? And I said, it's my cousin's. It used to be my dad's. They dressed it up for this wedding thing. And I, we're just driving to my house. It's just a few blocks away from here. And then once we get to my house, I'm switching to the other car. And the officer said to me, so you don't have your license, your tags are expired, and you don't have your registration. And I said, yes, sir. And it was here that I distinctly remember the officer saying to me, I could have you arrested right now. Do you understand that? To which I said, yes, sir. Yes, I understand it. And he said, I need you to get out of the car. And I said, okay. So I stepped out of the car and he looked right at me and he said, have you been drinking? And I looked at him very proudly and I said, no, sir, I've been very good. (laughs) And he said, I need to see that you haven't been drinking. I need you to walk in a straight line toward me. So I walked toward him. And as I was walking toward him, 
and walking in a straight line, he stopped me and he said, all of these streamers and all of these flowers that are on your car, they're illegal. They block your taillights. I need you to take them off immediately. As I was taking them off, he reminded me for the second time. He said, you understand I should arrest you right now. I said, yes, sir. I understand. Now, as I am taking these flowers and these streamers off, I kid you not, my wife leans out the window with her camera and takes a picture of me outside with the sirens behind me as I'm undressing our car from all of these floral decorations. Now, I'd like to remind you that this is my wedding night. This is not what I want to be doing with my time right now, if you know what I'm saying. After taking all of the decorations off, the officer says to me, okay, go back and sit down. I'm going to decide what I'm going to do to you and we'll see what happens. I go back and I sit in my car and I'm just sitting there like, oh my gosh, I might go to jail tonight. (laughs) This guy's threatened it twice. I'm sure this is happening. After several minutes, the officer then came back. I opened the door to speak to him and he says for a third time, you know, I could arrest you right now. Yes, sir. I, I know. And then he said to me, but I'm not going to, I'm going to escort you home. And I want to make sure that you don't drive this car anywhere else on the road because it's too dangerous. And I said, thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Now this cop clearly bullied me. And at the same time, I also have to say, I clearly broke a lot of laws that night from not having the car registered to not having my license to not having the registration and also covering all the taillights. I definitely broke the law, but at the same time, that cop really wanted to throw his authority around. And I was bullied by that guy. Now I have a question I'd like to ask you. How long do you think it took me to forgive that officer? Well, I will tell you. It's about nine seconds later. And if you want to know how I forgave a cop that bullied me, I will tell you how I forgave this cop. It's because it was my wedding day and I married the most intelligent, the most adventurous, the most hilarious, the most amazing woman I had ever met. We were surrounded by friends and family that we love that came from so far away and gave us their time to be with us on this special day. The wedding was incredible, an extraordinary amount of grace that I had just drank in. And all of a sudden, a cop comes along. He tries to ruin it. And I say, no way, mister. This is my day. And it was so much easier to forgive because I had been the recipient of extraordinary grace just moments before this. Can you imagine if I told this story and I said, man, that police officer really ruined my day. I just, I can't go back to that day without just being angry at the system and at life. Now this all leads us back to the question we asked at the very beginning of this podcast. What on earth does it mean to become humble like a child? Well, we have to consider what children are better at than adults by leaps and bounds. And to understand that, I want to tell you about my kids in particular. My daughter Maya has this unspeakable joy about new experiences that I can barely describe. When she goes to ballet class, she is grinning from ear to ear. When she has a birthday party, it is the best day of her life. She'll plan her birthday party for months and pick a theme like in June, even though her birthday's in December. Not only that, but she'll obsess about who she's going to invite and who's going to sit where and how much fun it's going to be. Compare and contrast that attitude with an adult 
who when we talk about birthdays as adults, we're like, oh, you know, another year, another year. What happened? Not only that, but when adults like say, oh yeah, another birthday, it's just getting older. Like, would you prefer the alternative where you didn't have another birthday? Because that sounds pretty bad. We also took my daughter to an angel game recently and she loved every second of it. And the happiest I've seen her, you know, and this is a lot of memories I have of her being happy, is when Mike Trout hit a home run and they set off fireworks. Everyone was cheering. There was fire in the outfield that they make because, you know, you got to have a home run with pyrotechnics. And as all this cheering is happening, my daughter is laughing. Why? Because she is overwhelmed with joy. My daughter loves to be alive. Yes, she cries. Yes, she gets fussy. Yes, she gets tired. But she loves to experience new things. And when I think of my daughter right now, the question that I always hear reverberating in my memories is this, Daddy, what are we going to do today? From my daughter, we moved to my son, Bodhi, who is two years old. My son loves trains, which is the biggest understatement of the year. He's obsessed with trains. And just recently, we got to go down to Paris where you can ride on a train pulled by Thomas the Train. Yes, it's all very real. So we boarded the train and my son, for the entire duration of the train ride, had his nose pressed against the glass, drinking in the passing scenery as he was on a train being pulled by Thomas. Not only that, but he loves drums. So much so that when we go to his cousin's house, Jake, who has a drum set, he doesn't say hi to anybody. He gets in the door and he runs straight to the drum set and begins knocking those bongos around like there is no tomorrow. My son is two years old. He can barely form sentences. And yet he has these things, these moments, these experiences he lives for and absolutely loves with all of his tiny little heart. So when we ask the question, what on earth does it mean to become humble like a child? I believe the answer is the humility of a child is an unbridled appreciation for the grace of being alive. Children get this so much better than adults. Children have this acceptance, this understanding, this embrace of what it means to be alive, and they hold it so much more valuably than we adults do. This childish appreciation is captured by the Muslim poet Hafiz who wrote in the 14th century with a poem called The God Who Only Knows Four Words. The poem goes like this. Every child has known God, not the God of names, not the God of don'ts, not the God who ever does anything weird, but children know the God who only knows four words and keeps repeating them saying, come dance with me. Come dance. Oh, that poem gets me right in the heart. This idea that God continually invites us to dance with God is what life is about for children. And as we grow and we become older, we somehow become calloused to that energy, that grace, that beauty that is within everyday life, don't we? And when we consider what it means to be alive here on this planet, in this context, wherever you may be, 
and we think about what it means to forgive someone, those people that are really difficult to forgive, Jesus tells us this story about how terrible it must be to live in extraordinary grace and not be able to see it. These two stories and these two ideas are connected to each other. Because what I believe Jesus is teaching us is this. Forgiveness begins by appreciating the extraordinary grace of being alive. Are you having difficulty forgiving someone? I understand. I've been there too. What I found to be most helpful is to go back and open myself up to how beautiful, how mysterious, how wonderful it is to be alive and breathing. How every day is a gift from God, even if that day is both terrible and beautiful. May you and I have eyes to see the extraordinary grace of our lives. And may we have the courage to see and embrace 